was Dwight L. Moody that some of you may have heard about before, famous 19th century American pastor who ministered in the Chicago area who once said famously, there are two reasons why I believe in the devil. First, the Bible teaches it. And second, because I've done business with him. Have you done business with the devil? I know that I have. Friends, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, our text that our brother Bill read for us just a few moments ago, is probably the best known passage in the entire letter of Ephesians. Ask anyone on the street if they know anything about Ephesians, and they might possibly have heard about the armor of God. Here we find Paul's now famous description, or maybe depiction, of the spiritual armor of the Christian. This text quite emphatically and unapologetically splashes a bit of cold water in our sleepy faces. Our, to sober us up as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to every Christian's fierce battle of faith in Christ and against Satan and his diabolical band of demonic minions. This is not just a text for pastors and elders. It's a text for every single saint. Because you will do battle with the devil. At the same time, the truth is that many modern Christians, for many of them, they prefer to treat this section of Scripture more like a special appendix than a real gospel application. That is, for a lot of folks, when Paul says... In Ephesians 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. They tend to disconnect, to disjoint or separate this final set of instructions from everything else that Paul has said up to this point in Ephesians. And frankly, friends, that's most unfortunate. You see, in actuality, the complete opposite is true of this passage. Rather than being some add-on, some extraneous appendix, Paul's discussion of every Christian spiritual battle is actually the perfect, not to mention the perfectly inspired, place for Paul to end his epic epistle. This is where we've been heading from the beginning. Just recall with me for a moment all that Paul had said up to this point about the heavenly realms and the spiritual realities for the Christian. Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, remember, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Or Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says that God made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Brothers and sisters, Ephesians is an utterly spiritual book. And likewise, Ephesians 1:18 to 21, Paul prayed that the church, you and I, might have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. 
that we might know what is the hope to which He has called us, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." far above all rule and all authority and all power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Ephesians 6 is nothing new. It's what we've been hearing about from the beginning. In Ephesians chapter 2 as well, Paul goes on to describe the personal spiritual resurrection, we might call it, that every Christian undergoes at the new birth. Do we not think that is spiritual warfare? That faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is what brings the power of God? Prior to the new birth, every single one of us was a fallen foot soldier of Satan. We were on his team before Christ rescued us and put us on his team. Heaven is real, friends, but listen, so is hell. Hell is real. In chapter 3, the apostle even further pulls back the veil on the mystery of the church in order to, as Ephesians 3, 9 says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God is working in you and in us to put to shame the devil and his evil minions. That is what is at stake in your pursuit of holiness. God will have his honor, and we are exhibit A, the church. Even in the practical section of Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul makes clear both the internal and external realities of spiritual warfare. For example, he says in Ephesians 4, that believers are given orders to put off the old self, which belongs to their former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. We have to deal, that is, we have to fight our flesh which is fallen. The realm of remaining sin in the flesh is one arena where the Christian must battle with the devil daily. Likewise, secondly, Christians are commanded in chapter 5 to walk as children of light. Verse 10, to try to discern what is pleasing of chapter 5, what to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. These are all spiritually oriented terms and references, but instead to expose them. Listen, it is not just inside of us, but also there are imminent threats and deception all around us in our culture. As Paul goes on to tell us in chapter 6, we must be prepared for them as believers in Christ. And finally, notice that as Jesus' disciples, we must be equipped to do battle even with this enemy, especially in the home. And that's what we've been looking at these last several weeks. 
How Paul's urgent commands to husbands and wives in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and parents and children in chapter 6, verses 5 to uh, 1 to 4, and then Christian masters and slaves in chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, all relate to the reality of spiritual warfare. Because if the devil cannot deceive you in your flesh or distract you in the culture, he will seek to destroy you in the home. As one person so well said it, let us watch out for Satan, for he watches for us. We are naturally afraid of a physical enemy, but our spiritual foe appears less terrible because we are less aware of him. This is why the Bible reminds us in place after place, including 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, that we are to be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, Peter writes, knowing that, at the, same, that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Let me ask you, this morning when you woke up, did you put on the spiritual armor of God? Did you slip into the belt of truth or put the feet shod with the gospel of peace on your toes? Did you consciously, awarely put on the armor of God today? Let me just make a speculation. Less than 1% of us would say we consciously thought of that when we got up this morning. Let me tell you what the devil thought about this morning. How am I going to distract, destroy and deceive God's church. He doesn't take a day off. Why can we? The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 6, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. In other words, sober up to the reality of spiritual warfare. Now the fact of the matter is, when it comes to this subject of spiritual warfare, people usually fall into one of two ditches. On the one hand, there are those who completely lose their minds about spiritual warfare. They go overboard, over the top, and there are others who simply bury their heads in the sand. Over-emphasis or under-appreciation. Those are the two extremes. Uh, some of you who may be a little more mature uh, may remember the name Keith Green, a famous Christian artist in the 1970s, who tragically died in a plane accident at the age of 28. He wrote a song entitled, No One Believes in Me Anymore, Satan's Boast. Some of the words of that song go like this, Oh, my job keeps getting easier. Imagine the devil's sinister voice here. As time keeps slipping away, I can imitate the brightest light and make the night look just like day. I put some truth in every lie. To tickle itching ears. You know, I'm drawing people just like flies because they like just what they hear. 
I'm gaining power by the hour. They're falling by the score. You know, it's getting very simple now since no one believes in me anymore. They're dabbling with magic spells. They're get, they get their fortunes read. You know, they heard the truth but turned away, and then they followed me instead. I used to have to sneak around, but now they just open their doors. No one is watching for my trick since no one believes in me anymore. Contemporary culture, it seems to me, church, has simply accommodated and acclimated to the demonic. We have desensitized the devil. Teens play with Ouija boards, maybe not so much anymore, but they once did. People flock to movies and read books by the dozens about the occult. We've domesticated the devil, making him a mascot for harmless mischief instead of seeing him as he truly is, the enemy of our souls. And all the while, the devil sinks his sulfur-smelling claws deeper into culture. Preoccupation on the one hand or complete denial on the other. Listen, these are the two widespread and worrisome responses most associated with any sort of of discussion of spiritual warfare in the church. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's famous introduction to the screw tape letters, a fictional dialogue between a demon and his nephew. Lewis wrote in the introduction, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, that is humans, can fall about these devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and yet to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist, that is, one who doesn't believe in spiritual realities, or a magician, one who immerses himself or herself in them with the same delight. Too much attention or too little, it doesn't matter to the devil. Because the devil doesn't care if you blame him for every sneeze, for every argument at home, for every bit of car trouble on the road, on the one hand, or if you completely dismiss his existence as spiritual nonsense or some religious fanaticism on the other, as that likely means you've also discounted the existence of God the Father. Both dispositions toward the demonic leave one especially vulnerable to the schemes and to the tricks of Satan. Where we need to be is in the tension of biblical truth, that there is an enemy, and we need to know him, and he is defeated so long as we stand in Christ. Because here's the fact. We are at war. We are at war. But maybe not with who you think we are. As Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why do we need to set our minds for action, if not because we are at war? There remains today a spiritual battle raging between the cosmic forces of good and evil. And because we are so in love with the world, We cannot see these spiritual realities. Every Lord of the Rings 
and Harry Potter novel, every Avengers or Star Wars movie, every political uh, channel or discussion, and every pornographic website reminds us over and over again that spiritual warfare is a reality. And all the while, the average Christian may never perceptibly, that is, evidentially, encounter a demon or an angel like the prophets and the saints of old may have in the Bible. Nevertheless, their existence is just as real today as they ever were. Brothers and sisters, we are in a spiritual battle. So listen, my purpose today in this beginning of a three-part series in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 is simply to awaken us to the reality of spiritual warfare without letting it run away with us. This hopefully isn't going to be your favorite sermon of all time that you keep coming back to, although I hope it's an edifying one as always. My purpose today is to help us gain a better appreciation for this reality of spiritual warfare, but also tactically a better understanding of the enemy that we face to raise awareness and to set the target on the devil himself. As Dr. James Boyce notes, many Christians see Christianity not as an entrance into warfare, but rather as an exit from it. Because we believe in Jesus, the battle is won. Well, yes, it is, but it's also just begun. It is certainly true that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has made a public spectacle of Satan's pathetic impotence. He is defeated. I like to see Jesus maybe doing a touchdown dance in heaven over the devil right now. As Paul says in Colossians 2.15, Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. Oh, the glory of the cross, because it means the devil is done. His time is just ticking out. As Again, as Colossians 1 reminds us that God has delivered us. We are the spoils of salvation from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But listen, it is also true that even though Christ disarmed and defeated the devil at the cross, our adversary is still a fierce and formidable And we need to prepare ourselves in faith for today's battles, even as we set our hopes firmly on the glory and the victory to come. It's not an either or, it is a yes and amen in Christ. We need to remember both our victory in Christ and be able to recognize our adversary, the devil, each day as we prepare ourselves to engage in spiritual warfare. So let's press into the text for just a few minutes this morning. I want you to notice that before we can begin to stand against the devil, we must be first strengthened by the Lord himself. Look at verse 10 of our text. Isn't it interesting? Paul says, finally, another word that might be rendered here is henceforth, or in light of all of this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may, able, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Simple statement, big point, is that for us as Christians, the key to spiritual victory is not in ourselves. It is in the supply of supernatural strength that God gives to us. As others have noted, the verb found in verse 10, rendered to be strengthened or to be strong in the Lord, is a present passive imperative. That is to say, it's a verb that commands us to do something continually, to have something be done to us, and it's not optional. We must do it. We must be strengthened continually from outside of ourselves by the strength of God. We have a command, even a hopeful assurance of gaining power to be strengthened for the fight of our lives. But that power does not come from us. It comes to us from Almighty God. I've been thinking this week about a way to illustrate this, and it occurred to me that the present 214-day-long conflict in Ukraine against Russia is actually a helpful analogy. Now, nobody would deny, I certainly hope, that President Vladimir Zelensky and the Ukrainian people are fighting unbelievably hard and with great valor against the evils of Putin's Russian army. However, few people would maybe deny that Ukraine's capabilities, well, they would be decidedly different, and perhaps this free country's prospects of victory undeniably reduced if not for the military strength that is being provided to this army by the United States and by other like-minded countries. In other words, we could say that Ukraine is being strong in American might and munitions. Does that make sense to you? That while the Ukrainian army is on the battlefield, it's actually American military strength that is winning the battle. I think it's a pretty good analogy for what we see in Ephesians 6 and the believer in spiritual warfare. When it comes to the believer's spiritual battle with sin, the flesh, and the devil, the same holds true. Find your strength, but find it in the Lord. Peter, 2 Peter 1 verse 3 tells us that God has given every divine power to us for all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. I love what Paul says in Romans 16 verse 25. We don't often cite this verse, but it says, Now to Him, in Paul's closing benediction, now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept long secret for long ages but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ amen God wants us to win the battle but we must depend upon him to do so Paul has told us in Ephesians that we are seated by God in Christ in order to walk by faith in the power of the Spirit so that we may take our stand against the devil and against demons. We are not left alone on the battlefield. 
The Spirit has not deserted us in this fight of faith. Rather, we are supplied by the weapons of faith to destroy spiritual strongholds. As 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 declares, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, we'll discover next week when we inspect the weapons of our spiritual warfare, the armor of God in verses 13 to 17, that the Lord has given us in Christ and through faith the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God, the Bible. He has given us the belt of truth and a a fireproof, a dartproof breastplate of righteousness in the righteousness of Jesus. He has given us shoes that are are just perfectly fitted to spread the news of Christ's death and resurrection in the gospel, and a helmet of salvation so that we can identify those who are on our team and those who are against us. This is the heavenly issued spiritual armor given by God to us for the battlefield as believers. But listen, all of these supernaturally provided weapons would be useless if we just failed to obey God's simple command to take them up. Imagine plane load after plane load of U.S. military hardware being sent to Ukraine just to sit on the tarmac And Ukrainians saying, nope, we got this. We're going to go out in our own armor and weaponry. Sovereigns supply the armor, but soldiers fight the battle. As Richard Sibbs, a Puritan in England, once said, there can be no victory where there is no combat. The victory lies not upon us, but upon Christ who has taken it upon himself not only to conquer for us, but to conquer in us. So there is a spiritual battle being fought today. We would do well to be aware of it. The remainder of the message is tactical and strategic. It is my aim to help you understand the wiles of Satan a little bit better. Again, there can be an unholy and unhealthy fascination with the demonic and with the devil. That is by no means what I want to see for any of you. Nevertheless, we should be aware of our enemy. We need to know know him. You know, it's sort of like the Philadelphia Eagles uh, going into this past Monday night's incredible victory against the Minnesota Vikings. Did you see that game? Man! It would, it would sort of be like them going into that game plan with the Detroit Lions, that game with the Detroit Lions game plan. The outcome would have been different. It was almost like they thought about how to call plays before Monday night. It was amazing, Rex. It was awesome. Well, listen, in the same way, the Apostle Paul says that we are to find our strength for the spiritual battle in the Lord so that we put on the spiritual armor of God supplied by the Lord that we may be able to take our stand against the devil. He's the enemy. He is the enemy. Against the devil's schemes, that word literally means his methods, his tactics, his strategy to consume and destroy you and I. As Paul adds in verse 12, 
which is the furthest we're going this morning in our text. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, note, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, literally the devil is in the details of Paul's inspired description of our mortal enemy. Even as Paul says, again, over in 2 Corinthians, by the way, 2 Corinthians is oozing with language about spiritual warfare. It would be a a, a very helpful study to do in in contrast to Ephesians 6. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, Paul says that as Christians, we must know our enemy in order that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Listen to me. We know the devil's playbook because we have God's playbook. We know his tactics, therefore we should not be surprised by his tricks. Now before looking at this playbook, just let me make an important observation and a brief comment about this unholy alliance of enemies with the devil. Paul mentions in verse 12, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And friends, I think Paul has something specific in mind there. Nope, specifically that as Christians, we are engaged in hand-to-hand combat. The word in the Greek text is the word for wrestling, We are, this isn't just sort of um, drone warfare. This is up close and personal warfare. But it is not, the the negative here, it is not against flesh and blood. This is a euphemism simply meaning against humanity, against other people. And this is where I think far too many Christians, far too many of us, so often are on the wrong page because we identify our ultimate enemy not as the devil, but as a Democrat or as a Republican or as somebody who looks different from us or somebody who talks differently than we do. They are not our ultimate enemy. The devil is. Our struggle is not purely physical or against other people or institutions, though they may be evil, And they may need to be opposed. Paul says instead we are at war against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, the devil could not be more pleased with us as Christians when we preoccupy ourselves with political divisions and debates. When we allow ourselves to be roped into just religious Uh, infighting against denominations, or when we join the culture wars all around us, ignoring his presence and activity altogether. I'm not saying that political engagement is sinful, not at all, but may we never forget who's ultimately holding the strings, because the devil is our enemy, not other people. 
And when we treat other people or when we view other people or institutions as the enemy, most often we do not treat them like Christ would. That's something we need to be mindful of as believers. Now listen, some Bible teachers would want to draw a straight line from the rulers or the authorities or the powers or the forces to some specific element in Satan's wicked horde. I'm not just such a pastor. There may be, I think, are some legitimate interpretive uh, things to say here about who these things are, entities are, demons, uh, kings, all sorts of things. But I simply want to point out that Paul is trying to draw our, our eyes up into spiritual realities, out of earthly matters, at least to the spiritually orchestrated and organized enemies that we are facing as Christians every day. In other words, the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces may, in fact, I think likely do have specific references behind them, i.e. human kings like Nero in Paul's day, or rulers, or provincial governors um, that would be human puppets of satanic uh, enterprise and and tactics, to human philosophies or uh, religious systems that seek to undermine people's uh, confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or even to specific demonic forces that actively obey the devil's orders, inflicting injury and influence upon Christians and non-Christians alike. But the point here, the straightforward point that I want you to understand today is that these verses are calling us to see that we have a spiritual enemy in front of us. A spiritual enemy, that they are Satan's servants allied against God's choice children. And further, these forces against us These are the forces against us that we are battling as believers. So as we wrap up this morning, let me give you four wiles of the devil. Four of Satan's favorite tactics or strategies to destroy us or distract us or to consume us as believers. Number one, Satan loves to accuse us. First, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 tells us so. The writer John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night. You know, the name Satan itself means adversary. The word devil means slanderer. And that is because one of Satan's most diabolic strategies, and one that he really gets a lot of pleasure out of, is to throw mud, to shift blame, to point the finger, or merely just to accuse us before Almighty God. In his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, author John Bunyan describes a battle between the accuser Apollyon and Christian in the Valley of Humiliation. One of Apollyon's ploys is to recite the laundry list of Christians' sins that we read of in the book. Thou didst faint at first setting out, and when thou almost choked in the gulf of despond, or the slough of despond, thou didst attempt wrong ways to rid thyself of thy burden, thou didst sinfully sleep and lose thy choice thing, etc., etc., piling on accusation against poor Christian. 
Well, Christian's response to the accuser is full of humility and full of faith. He says in response to Apollyon, all this is true and much more that you have left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides, these infirmities possessed me in thy country. For there I sucked them in, and I have groaned under them, but I've been sorry for them, and I have obtained pardon from my prince. At the mere mention of Christ's forgiveness, Apollyon flies into a fit of rage. And Satan, the accuser, cannot abide the fact that his accusations are overcome by the grace of Jesus. The devil wants you to fear your standing before a faithful God. That's why he accuses you day in and day out, saying things like, God doesn't really love you. If God loved you, your life would be easier. Your life would be better. You wouldn't sin as much. You're not a real Christian. Do you really think God would love you and save you and bring, to, bring you into his heaven? Who has among us here has not had those thoughts before? Let me tell you, I think it is the enemy at the gate. Jesus further said that the devil is the father of lies in John 8, He has been smearing and murdering God's children from the beginning. And so one of the fundamental weapons of our warfare against the devil is the sword of truth. Secondly, the, another of Satan's wiles or strategies is that of deception. He does accusation. He also does deception awfully well. In fact, we read again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan even disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is no surprise then if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The forces of the devil are full of spiritual saboteurs, full of fakes, full of false teachers who have the appearance of godliness but deny the truth in their lives. These conscripts of the devil's army are fake philosophies and false religions and false prophets and teachers, and we need to recognize them for what they are. If the devil can't get you to doubt that God loves you, then he will undoubtedly hang a carrot of false doctrine out in front of you. Because the truth is, the devil doesn't mind a little bit of religion. In fact, Satan might like you to dabble in a bit of self-justifying good works to keep you from the gold of grace. Just so long as you don't abandon yourself to Jesus and throw all your faith upon the altar of Christ, and this is why we need to know the tactics of the devil. This is why we need to know our Bibles, because the best way to spot a counterfeit is to know stone cold the truth. A third sinister trick of Satan is what we might simply label as temptation, accusation, deception, and thirdly, temptation. The devil has perfected the art of making pleasurable what is grotesque, to make sin look appealing, to promise everything and provide nothing. As the Bible says in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world, 
or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And John says, and the, wor- and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, one quick caveat here. No, you're not that important. The devil is not behind every temptation that comes your way. He is not omnipresent. He is not behind every temptation that you and I face. But generally speaking, one of Satan's schemes does in fact involve distracting us from God's will by appealing to the fallen appetites of our flesh. Appetites like sex and money and power and feeling important so that we would long or lunge after those things rather than falling into Jesus. The devil wants us to pursue empty pleasures rather than the ultimate one, who is Christ. That's why James says, submit yourselves to God first. Resist the devil next, and he will flee from you. Some of us get a little high on the hog, and we think that we can resist the devil in our own strength. We'll go and read about the seven sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19 about that. Well, finally, the fourth strategy that I'll mention this morning, and we'll get into more specifics next week, is that Satan loves to use affliction against us. Or we might use the word persecution or suffering. If the devil cannot discourage you, or if the devil cannot distract you, if the devil cannot deceive you, then the devil is going to try to destroy you. That's his playbook. Now, the thing, again, that we need to remember here is that Satan is neither omnipresent, that is, he's everywhere, nor is he omnipotent, that is, he is all-powerful. Just remember Job's story in the Old Testament. How that reminds us of Satan's activity, of Satan's prominence, but of Satan's limitations. You see, Satan, as one writer said, is a dog on a chain, but God holds the chain. Satan is not the equal opposite to Almighty God, as despite certain common philosophies and mental pictures. In fact, again, in Job's circumstances, Satan had to appeal to God for permission to touch Job's family, even his flesh. Again, more to the point, we don't always understand, and this is so hard even to preach about, we don't always understand why God permits physical suffering and hardship in the lives of His children. He must permit what comes to pass. But we do know that if God permits it, He has a purpose in it. As Romans 8.28 reminds us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed to us belong to us and to our children. We know that the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, that we are not to lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day after day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So this is Satan's playbook, friends. Full of boring plays 
of accusation, of deception, of temptation, and of affliction or destruction. These are the schemes that ought to drive us into the armor of God. At the end of the day, though, it is not our preparation, but rather it is Christ's perfection. His life, His death, His resurrection that guarantees our victory in the gospel. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. Ultimately, one writer said, spiritual warfare is not about a certain technique that we learn to defeat Satan, but rather a way of life that we live by faith in Jesus. I close with a reminder of an unusual scene from 2 Kings that points to the reality of spiritual warfare on the earth. In 2 Kings, we find many stories about a man by the name of Elisha. Elisha was, of course, the pupil to the great Elijah, the prophet of Israel. He, in fact, received a double portion of the spirit of Elijah when he was caught up in those chariots of fire. In chapter 6, though, of 2 Kings, we're told about a fight that was spoiling between the king of Syria and the king of Israel. The king of Syria, in fact, was greatly annoyed and even angry because Elisha the prophet was reading his mail. Mentally, that is. That's a way of saying that he was telling the king of Israel everything the king of Syria was doing. When the king found out that Elisha was in the city of Dothan, he sent horses and chariots and a great army, which came by night and completely surrounded the city. The next morning, Elisha's servant awoke and looked out upon a great and vast army surrounding he and his master. In short, Elisha's servant simply freaked out. Maybe you've had one of those moments. And he said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And I leave you with Elisha's reaction. He said in verse 16 of 2 Kings 6, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he might see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Not of the enemy, but of God himself. Beloved, the battle is real. We are at war. But do not fear, for those who are with us are greater than those who stand against us. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we simply ask that you would open our eyes to see the power, to see the provision, to see the gospel, which guarantees our victory. Father, we pray that we would be sober-minded and prepare ourselves for battle. Oh Lord, we count upon your spirit and the community of the church to apply and work out what you have taught us this morning. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.